just got to do our best. The balcony is a lot fuller than normal. I love that song, Be Still My Soul. We'd like to welcome you to a service where we have, uh, where we've come really to be still. I'd like to welcome you to a quiet service of uh, reflection and uh, repentance. For those of you who are new with us, we're near the end of a period of 40 days of congregational prayer and fasting where all together we've been seeking God's guidance for our future in a posture of repentance. It's a period that we're calling 40 days to a new beginning after going through some pretty difficult times as a family last year. This 40-day period is the culmination of uh, much soul-searching, uh, much self-examination and prayer, of confessions, of many reconciliations that are happening, and uh, th uh, the learning of many lessons. Today is the 34th day. The 40th day is this coming Saturday. And then on Sunday, a week from today, we'll celebrate together both uh, in our services and at our annual turkey dinner, which we always enjoy together as a family the Sunday before Thanksgiving over there in the Hall of Faith. This service is the culmination of what scores of us have been doing individually now for uh, 34 days. So the vast majority of us are already participants. You've already taken the lead, you might say, as you'll be doing today as well in the worship and in much else. That's why there's no choir. The choir is spread throughout the congregation, and uh, Brian and Kay and Amber will help lead the worship, but it'll be from the side so that we all can take the lead in this service which we need to do, and so that our focus will be on God, on the holy God, and on the God of all mercy. We've been seeking him individually, and now it's the time to, to, to seek him to take the lead congregationally as, uh, as one family. We'd like it to be a quiet service, so please turn off your cell phones, and you might want to check them just to make sure. Neither will we interrupt the service with an offering. We'll do a retiring offering. The baskets will be our back uh, by the doors. But first, we'll offer ourselves. Our prayers, our confessions, our worship, uh, our lives. Let's pray together. This is from Daniel's prayer, one of the greatest prayers of confession in Scripture. It's in Daniel chapter 9. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Therefore now, O our God, listen to our prayers. To the prayer, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. Hear. 
Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and take action. For your own sake, delay not, O oh, our God, because your city and your people and your church are called by your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know more than any other man in Scripture, David pled with God for him to forgive his sins and to give him the blessing uh, of his righteousness. And he believed in what awaited those who come to him uh, in a posture of repentance. And that is the blessing, yes, of his righteousness, just as we read, and of so much more. The blessings that await us here today. More than any other place in Scripture, we see this, as many of you know, uh, in Psalm 51. And so we're going to piggyback now on this great psalm of confession. As most of you know, David wrote it after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered uh, her husband Uriah. It's a public prayer of confession, one that uh, God's people in the Old Testament actually used in their worship services a prayer that was also a very private prayer of confession, and everyone knew what he was talking about. And so it's a good way for us all together publicly to begin uh, confessing our sins all together, but secretly in our own hearts. What you'll be hearing is Psalm 51 put to music. We'll play the first half now, and then at the very end of the service, we'll uh, uh, play the second half. It's sung by the King's College Cambridge Choir, which consists of both men and boys. My sister and I ran across them 40 years ago on a bicycle trip through England, and we've been listening to this piece ever since. It's a choral version of the psalm that's truly a classic. It's inspired a posture of repentance deep in the spirit of generations of believers. It's a piece by Gregorio Alegre, one that's well known for what they call the counterpoint of the boy soprano. A counterpoint is a harmony that's like independent of the choir as they sing. In this case, it's like this piercing solo flight. Three times you'll hear one of the boy sopranos go up into the stratosphere. He hits a C6, the sixth C note on the piano. And when he does, it's as though, as one man said, David's confession becomes the uttermost soul cry of the repentant heart. You might, as you listen, call to mind something that you need forgiveness for, something that God has been laying on your heart maybe over the last 34 days, something you need deliverance from. What, what would it be? Or you might want to just focus on your posture. <laughs> Let's assume now a posture of repentance together. Let's dial down and tune in to his spirit through his word as we slow down and meditate word by word uh, on the first half of Psalm 51. We'll conclude the service with the second half of this great uh, psalm of confession. That's the goal for us all together as a body, for him through us to renew a right spirit within us after all we've been through. In more ways than one, this choral version of the psalm does justice to the main message of Psalm 51 because this arrangement of the psalm emphasizes why we can have the courage to confess our sins uh, in the first place. There are two words in the first uh, verse of Psalm 51 that tee it all up 
and really say it all. And the choir repeats both words three times. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, have mercy. After thy great goodness, after thy great goodness, after thy great, and then they stretch it out for five stanzas, goodness. According to the multitude of thy third time on mercies, mercy to avail all my offenses. Mercy gets repeated three times, and so does goodness. Another translation for goodness here, in fact, the better translation is loving kindness or compassion. And so it says in the New American, have mercy upon me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out all my transgressions. This puts to words the image that, you'll, that you see up there on the screens and the sculpture that's in front of me, that of the prodigal son in the father's arms. It shows how deep the Father's love for us goes. That David could appeal him to him in light of his adultery and murder in that way. According to your mercies, according to your great compassion, forgive me. It goes so deep, the Father's love, that he sent his son to a cross to pay for our sins. He stretched out his arms on the cross so we can now go to the Father's outstretched arms. Whenever we repent of our sins. If we come to him in a true posture of repentance, as many of you are today, the arms of his loving kindness are awaiting us. The greatness of his fatherly compassion, a fullness of blessing, just like awaited the prodigal son of his forgiveness, his deliverance, his abundance. Which is what awaits us today. And I believe in the years to come. It's all through Scripture how deep the Father's love for us is. Paul says the same thing in Romans 2, uh, 1 to 4, if you'll turn there. It's where we left off last week in our verse-by-verse exposition of this book, which we'll continue just uh, briefly today. In his providence, these verses, the next verses in our exposition of Romans, are perfect verses for what we're doing today. Paul sums up these four verses at the end of verse 4 of Romans uh, 2, 1 to 4, in the last eight words when he says, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. In chapter 1, we saw what's wrong with the world. But in chapter 2, verse 1, it's like Paul wheels around and points the finger at us and says, therefore you... Therefore, you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. We saw last week that even his judgment is a severe mercy to bring us to our knees. But all this compassion won't do us much good unless we receive two words of conviction. Therefore you. Because without conviction we won't have much need of him even as Christians. Therefore, me, you're thinking, I thought we were talking about them. 
What's going on here? Well, it's what G.K. Chesterton said, the great apologist of the Christian faith, in a letter to the editor at the Times of London. He said it in response to an article titled, What's Wrong with the World? What's wrong? Here's what he wrote. Two words, I am. I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> Therefore, you. What Paul's doing here is this, putting it in the context of the rest of this chapter, of chapter 2. He's fingering the characteristic sin of moral people, of God's people, of the church-going people of his day. At the end of chapter 1, he summed up this list of horrible sins with two words, unloving, unmerciful. And now he says that we practice the same things. We too can be so unloving and unmerciful along with other things that he lists in, at the very end. And Paul says here that the worst of it, uh, in chapter 2, he says the worst of it is summed up in the word judgmental. We who have experienced such mercy. He's been so merciful to us, yet still God's people can be the most judgmental. Therefore, you are without excuse, every one of you who judges. A friend of mine, Tom Hovestall, who pastored Calvary Church in Longmont for over 20 years, he published a book with Moody Press called Extreme Righteousness. Extreme Righteousness, sub subtitled Seeing Ourselves in the Pharisees. Those of us who are in churches that hold a high view of Scripture, scripture who care about right and wrong, can go to this extreme. One of the chapters is titled, When Rightness Leads to Wrongness. He talks about what he calls warning lights of self-righteousness. He says the number one sign of self-righteousness is a contemptuous view of others. We forget that we may be dead right in what we're thinking, but dead wrong in how we're thinking it. We may be dead right in what we're saying, but dead wrong in how we're saying it. We may be dead right in what we're thinking about their sin, but dead wrong in what we're feeling about them because of their sin. We may be dead right in our evaluation of their depravity, but dead wrong in our lack of mercy. And James says this turns the truth into a lie from the pit of hell. Paul still writes, so often, so many on the Christian right are so wrong because judgmentalism is indeed our characteristic sin, at least among many. Used to be over doctrines that didn't matter. Would the doctrine matter today? <laughs> We're at the other extreme. You may have heard about the guy who was walking across a bridge and he saw a man on the edge about to jump and he said, I ran over and I said, stop, don't do that. And he said, why not? I asked, well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Well, are you religious? I asked. He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or, or, uh, or, or Church of the Lord? I'm Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879, or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, Reformation of 1915. I said, die, heretic scum, and I pushed him off. You know, we may not quibble over doctrine like that anymore, but we can so, be so unloving and so unmerciful, uh, merciless for other reasons, both at home and at church and in the political arena. It's no different. 
truth be told, deep down, we want to push some of them off the bridge and say, die, heretics, die. Those are the feelings. Even the brethren. Even people in our own congregation. More and more these days, you feel like Peter Marshall did, a great minister of another day, chaplain to the Senate. He said, oh, Lord, where we are wrong, make us willing to change, and where we are right, make us easy to live with. <laughs> you see, you see it in our high opinion of our own opinion, which is why later on in Romans, Paul said, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's Romans twelve sixteen. New Living translates it, don't think you know it all. For all of us, it's so easy to think that we know it all when it comes to our doctrine or our opinion or our evaluation of persons or of situations. To which Paul says, do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not be conceited in your convictions. Therefore, you. Last Thursday afternoon, just three days ago, we received a message about this, one that was addressed directly to us here at Faith Church. It was last Thursday from 2 to 5 p.m. that the Northern Colorado Revivalists visited us in this very room. These are a group of about 15 men and women, brethren of stature, who seek to bring revival to churches by just praying in their sanctuaries. It was a powerful experience of worship and the word of encouragement uh, and exhortation from brothers and sisters who knew how to hear from God. It was unlike anything I've ever experienced before. It, it went on for three hours, and they readied this room for today. At the very end, ten of them or so prayed over Jim Murphy and me right there. Jim and I... Uh, held hands, and, uh, and then they were on either side of us, so we were holding hands, and they held up our arms. My arm, Jim's arm, as they prayed for us and lifted us up like, like uh, Aaron and her did with Moses. It was so encouraging. And they had such encouragement for us as a congregation. At the beginning of the service, Jim showed them the last 10 days of prayers for our 40 days of prayers. And, and he said, do you know how rare this is for the, uh, a whole congregation to pray and fast for 40 days? Uh, seeking his guidance, he was talking to everyone there in a posture of repentance. He said, I love that. He, and he asked his fellow revivalists, have you ever seen this? This is unheard of. Though, of course... We can't take pride in that. It's his mercy and our folly that sent us to our knees. Throughout the service, there were scripture-based proclamations and prophetic words that foretold the truth of God's word about forgiveness, about the fullness, about the abundance, about uh, the deliverance. They use those very words that comes to those who seek him in a posture of repentance and about how this will certainly happen with us. And now the Northern Colorado Revivalists are all praying the prayers that are in the last 10 days of our prayer guides, both for us and for Nor Northern Colorado. But there was also a word of exhortation, one that we needed to hear. It was from their leader, Brad Tuttle. He's a layman who for well over 20 years has been spending two hours uh, early every morning, seven days a week, worshiping God and reading his word, worshiping God through his word. It's the wellspring of his ministry. And during that time alone with God, just a couple days before they came here on Thursday, early last week, God, he said God gave him something both for himself and for us. It was from Romans 14. 
the same book that we happen to be in. He was so moved by what he read and by how the Spirit led in his reading that he wrote it all down, and then he read it to us uh, three days ago on Thursday. And as he did, he was weeping. It's titled, Unity, A Different Perspective. Over the years, Brad wrote, I have come to understand that to most of us, unity really means that if you would just agree with me, then we could live in peace and unity. Sound familiar, he wrote? I've been fasting and praying through Romans, he said, and God showed me something in chapter 14 about unity that I'm compelled to share with you. By the way, this very chapter, Romans 14, that he was in, happens to be the passage in Romans that's about judgmentalism. It's one of the best illustrations and applications of our passage for today of Romans 4, 1 to 4. And that is how we judge one another. It's the very chapter he was on at the very time I was seeking confirmation from the Lord of whether or not I should preach from Romans 2 or something else and how I should apply it. In verse 10 of chapter 14, it says, But you, why do you judge your brother? In uh, verse 13 of chapter 14, uh, it says, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore. And then Brad picked it up two verses later in Romans 14, 15. Let me read, read to you what he said. The second sentence of verse 15 states, Do not destroy with your food one for whom Christ died. It seemed that God would not let me go further, and so I just stayed there on that verse. And finally, the thought came to me that, it would, uh, that what would this verse mean if I substituted food with tradition or opinion? That is, my thoughts, my way, my viewpoint, how I think about something should be done, etc. So then I read it again as, Do not destroy with my opinion the one for whom Christ died. Wow. Revelation hit me, and I instantly was overcome with conviction that led to tears. I thought that would allow my stubborn, the thought that I would allow my stubbornness, my pride, my opinion to destroy the one for whom Christ died pierced my heart to the core to the point that I could hardly breathe. Then verse 20 jumped out at me. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Again, if we insert my opinion, it would read as, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of my opinion. Conviction again overwhelmed me that I could destroy the work, his work in someone's life by my opinion. I was at a loss for words as this sunk deep into my soul, replaying so many situations and conversations where my opinion was more important than a peaceful relationship with the other person or persons. Like, wow, was that worth it? Was my opinion really that important? Did it really matter to me that much? Am I God that I'm infallible? After that, verse 19 stood out and, uh, and reads, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Talk about a capstone, an exclamation mark, a roadmap for our life. Amen, he said. So I humbly ask all of us Christ followers to fervently and diligently pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. And then he prayed. Oh Lord God, we repent for our failure to walk in agreement and unity with others. We repent that to us unity really means that if others would just agree with us, then we could live in peace and unity. 
Your word tells us in Romans 14 not to destroy with our food the one for whom Christ died. Could that also apply to our traditions, our opinions, Lord? That we, with these we could destroy the one for whom you died. Oh, Lord, bend us, convict us, that we would allow our stubbornness, our pride, to destroy the one for whom you died. Your word also tells us, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Could we destroy the work of God for the sake of our opinion? our thoughts, our ways, our viewpoints, how I think something should be done. Oh God, overwhelm us, break us, that we would destroy your work in someone's life by our opinions. Oh Jesus, how many of our conversations have we had where this was more important than a peaceful relationship with the other person? Is what we think really that important? Did it really matter that much to us? May we agree with your word in Romans 14, 19 that tells us to pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. So, Lord, we humbly cry out to you that we believers would fervently and diligently pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify, build up, and encourage one another. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Signed, Brad Tuttle. But you know, in the face of all that and more, the kindness of God beckons us to repentance. In the face of all that and more, we can experience His uh, loving kindness, His forgiveness, His deliverance, His abundance, if we but assume a posture of repentance, and especially when we do it together. For all that and more, we just have to say, have mercy on me, O Lord, with the uttermost soul cry, just like that boy, of the repentant heart. For all that and more, God will give these things to us. Just like it says in the book of Joel, as Jim Murphy preached, I guess, four weeks ago now, and with this I'll close. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly that he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, Joel says. 